Luke 18, starting in verse 15. People were also bringing babies to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. When the disciples saw this, they rebuked them. But Jesus called the children to him and said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. A certain ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. All these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, You still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, Who then can be saved? Jesus replied, What is impossible with man is possible with God. Peter said to him, We have left all we had to follow you. Truly, I tell you, Jesus said to them, No one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of my kingdom, or for the sake of the kingdom of God, will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. Thinking this week about the uh, kind of critical scene in the first Jurassic Park movie, this moment where the, the scientists, they've flown these scientists off to this island to see this amazing work they're doing and told them about it, but I don't think they've really believed the scope of the project yet. And one of the, the scientists, the Laura, Laura Dern's character, she's seen this leaf, and I think she's a botanist or whatever, so she's kind of really impressed with all of this leaf that they've kind of recreated and how old this was. But while she's sitting here looking at this leaf and kind of chattering away, the Sam Neill's character is, um, suddenly looks and, and looks out in the field and has this kind of dumbfounded look on his face. And finally he just grabs her head and just turns her head so she can see this big dinosaur in front of them. And actually, it's kind of this, this little meta moment because it's the moment that they reveal the dinosaur for us as a viewer back in the 90s when they make the movie. It's actually itself kind of this kind of revelation of the technology of filmmaking and just, just how realistic they can make these things look. But it, it's this, this moment that's this, like a reorientation. I think that's the word that I, I want to kind of hammer home today. It, it's, a, it's a reorientation where in that moment, that there's this single look where they are discovering anew what, what really is possible. Just what is the world and what's capable, what, what can you do and what can you see. And, and not everyone is impacted the same way. The, the, like the lawyer in, in the car looks up and, and his response is, we're all going to be rich. And kind of appropriately, he's the first one that's eaten by the dinosaurs. But, but for the rest of them, there is this wonder as the, this imagination is being ignited as they're seeing this, this new vision of what is possible and what the world is about. 
I, I heard a speaker this week, I spent a few days at a retreat, and one of the things he said that, I, that really impressed me, he said that, that when we gather as this moment here, as we gather as the people of God in worship, this is the truest thing that we do in the course of the week. Because as we gather in worship, we are orienting life around how it really is. Because we are seeking to put God at the center of who we are and what we do and seeking to proclaim His glory. That's, that's the truth that we may stumble and struggle to live into the rest of the week. But here in this moment, we strive to really have the truest expression of who we are and what this world really is about as we worship. Um, the gospel itself is a reorientation. And it, it is meant to reorient us and everything about us. Um, this here in Luke 18, this text that we're going to be in, is, is a reorientation. And it's a reorientation first to the disciples that he's giving these stories to, that he is preparing them. And, and as we're moving through Luke, there's a kind of a, a, a slow upping of the intensity uh, because he's preparing them for his end. He's preparing them for the cross that they fully don't understand. They're, they're not going to grasp for a long time. And he's preparing them for what is getting ready to change in the story. This, it, it, and it happens through a series of really four well-known moments. I think these four stories, if you're around the church, if you've been around for a while, probably you've heard these stories. So most of you have, have, have heard them. These are well-known moments. But we usually read them independent. These are kind of the stories that we'll tell to kids in you know, kind of a Sunday school thing. But we rarely put them together the way Luke does. Luke puts them right in order and wants us to read them sequentially. Um, because I think, but when we do, if we take these four texts together, they will reorient us about who God is and the implications of the character of God. Now, if you don't have your Bibles open yet, I'd encourage you to open them Luke 18. I want to start where, in verse 1, let's start with where our, our, our class spent time with. And we have, again, four stories that we're putting together. The first story is um, the story of the parable of the persistent widow. And, and it begins with a kind of reveal. This is a very unique thing. Actually, the first two parables, you'll see, he tells them up front. This is what this is about, and this is what I want you to be paying attention to. So he, he says, verse 1, he told them a parable to the effect that they ought to always to pray and not lose heart. Um, and, and, and so he's preparing the fact, then he gives them this story. He said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while, he refused. But afterward, he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I'll give her justice so that she'll not beat me down by her continually coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect? who cry to him day and night. Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give to them justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Well, a couple things I want you to see. First off, the whole frame of the entire story tells them, really gives them, telegraphs that the disciples will experience suffering. I was talking this week to a, a, a family who's telling me about their struggle with They've had several uh, nieces and nephews that have kind of walked away from the faith, and, and they were, said how much they were, they, those, those uh, nieces and nephews were really drawn to like these deconversion stories, which has kind of become a new thing. It's like they're, 
you can see a lot these, uh, not that people haven't had these deconversion moments before, but now with the social media, it's like there's a, almost like an evangelism of deconversion stories that you'll see these well-known people who say, oh, well, here's why I'm no longer a Christian. Um, but one of the patterns that you see in a lot of these deconversion stories is in anger uh, or frustration over suffering and injustice. I kind of have wondered myself how many atheists aren't really atheists, but they're just angry at God because they've experienced some kind of suffering they can't explain or some kind of injustice that it's not, they're not seeing made right. Um, and, and they are stumbling over an understanding of the story of God that has a place for suffering. Uh, and there's a lot of reasons why. I mean, I think this is one of the, the critical struggles of being a, a theist even, just being a follower of a, a belief in, a, in, in God himself, we always are going to struggle with that. There's a lot that's worth wrestling with. But I think one of the ways in which sometimes the church has failed a lot of those folks that have stumbled over this is the, the church has often not been willing to be up front about what the Bible is up front about, which is that you're going to see suffering and you're going to see injustice. You're going to see, you're living in a broken world and, and you're going to have it. And, and, and I, I think it's I think it's worth it to note how integral the reality of suffering is in the story of the Bible, uh, how integral it is to understanding this is the way the world works, and this is how a sovereign God, a good God, a loving God is making the world right. Um, <clears throat> the, the, the Bible does not neglect the reality of suffering. He tells them up front. In fact, that's one of the things he's been kind of reminding them as he gets them ready for the end is, actually, you're going to be suffering. He just said it in the last chapter. He said, you know, there's going to be a point where you're going to be praying for God's kingdom to come. You're going to want this to end because of some of, what you're, some of the things you're going through. Uh, and, and so there's a reality, and he tells them here, I want you to pray and not lose heart. He reminds them that the suffering is coming, and they are to be a people who are persevering in, in the midst of it. They are persevering and reaching out and calling out to God as they face suffering and tribulation and hardships of many kinds. And so this picture of perseverance, the hero of this parable, is clearly then this widow and for, for that world, when, as soon as he says widow, that for their first century mindset, that's a, that's a picture of total vulnerability. I mean, that's a, a man's world they're living in. And for a woman to be widowed is to put herself in a place of extreme vulnerability. It's no, there's no certainty that she has any means of employment, any means of income, any means of support. There is so little network of support for her but for the community that might reach around and surround her. So there's an understanding that you're seeing this widow crying out for justice. You're looking at a helpless person. What does she have? She has no power. She has no influence. She has no ability uh, to, to change anything. And who's she reaching out to? She's reaching out to the judge because the judge can change something. And you, you're imagining here as this story unfolds, you're, you begin to see this picture of whatever the situation is. This is the the widow that's been harmed by someone and needs the judge to act. But the judge is the one with all the power. So what is she saying? She's saying, give me justice. She's living with injustice. She's living in a broken world and experiencing that brokenness. Um, and in a sense, she is, um, she is reaching out and needing him to change. Um, so the, the disciples are experiencing suffering. The disciples are then looking to God as their source of power and life in the face of that suffering. For her, where else can she go but to the judge? There is a desperation there. 
It's not like she can go knock on the judge's door and he says, no, I'm not going to do anything. And so then she said, well, I've got 10 other people I can call. There is a desperation. She needs this unjust system to work for her. And who do we have depicted here? I think this is one of those harder parables to try to understand because who is this judge? I mean, this is just a nasty, nasty person. I kind of, ca- I call these, I group these, I call them the mafia parables. We talked about the other one last week, which is in Luke 16, the, the, um, you have the, un- the unrighteous steward, the unrighteous manager. And like, he, you know, you see the manager who's kind of cheating his way to kind of protect himself as he's getting ready to be fired. And, and the boss comes or the owner comes and says he praises him for his, you know, because of his, the way he stewarded that. He kind of used that moment. And it's a picture of a broken world and evil people doing evil things. And it's a, a, a the comparison is a really a, a comparison from the lesser to the greater, where Jesus says, look, if the broken world and broken people can act that way, how much more would your good father act otherwise? And that's what you've got here. You've got a a judge who says, this is a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. In fact, it's so much so that he says it. Verse 4, he says, I neither fear God nor respect man. I said this morning, wouldn't that be great to have a bumper sticker? Wouldn't you want a judge that's running for election on that campaign? I neither fear God nor respect man. Um, This is not a good judge. This is a corrupt judge, a lousy judge. um, But he's the one with the power. And, And she is desperate to have him do something. Um, and, and the way she gets him to do something is by tapping on his shoulder again and again and again and again. Some of you parents know this kind of experience. And like all of a sudden, in the midst of that tapping, you're finally like, what? What? And he's like, fine, we'll do it. Annoyed him enough. He wore him down. Like, wore the, I just don't want to deal with this anymore. We'll just do whatever. It doesn't matter. Then worn down. He doesn't care any more about justice than he did before. He doesn't care any more about her. She finally just annoyed him. That is not how we are to relate to God. I think this is that we've got to be clear about that in this parable. This is not God is an unrighteous judge who neither fears God nor respects man. And the only way you're going to get to do something is by annoying him enough by tapping him on the shoulder. That's not what, and that's exactly what Jesus says. He, he says here, look, this is who he is. Hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not give God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night. Which is to say, if an unrighteous judge who does all these things can do all this nastiness, and he eventually can actually do justice just because he's annoyed enough to do it, how much more would your good father do something and work on behalf of, and this is a, a, a unique term for Luke, on behalf of his elect. And when you hear the term elect, sometimes it makes some people nervous. We say, oh, now we're getting into weird theology. But here the key is, anytime we hear the word elect, what it's doing for us is it's making us think, we're, it's, it's reminding us of how high a view of the church that, that Jesus has, the high view of the church that God has. Um, so much so that he reveals to us something that we fully don't understand. It's, it's, it's hard theology. But he says, you're, you're coming to the church. You're becoming because you're, you're placing faith. You're doing something. You're responding to the gospel. And yet, it turns out that this church is actually also the elect body of God's people. That, that the church is God's composition. The church is God's work and God's accomplishment. That, that we are here because God wants us to be here. That um, God is determined to create and to sustain his church. He loves this church more than we do, far more, um, so much so that he, he sent his son to die for it. 
So God, um, if an unrighteous judge can be annoyed enough to finally do justice, how much more would a good and loving God who loves his church respond to the cries of his people when they want justice done? There is a determination on God to make the world right. And that informs then how disciples learn to trust a timetable that we don't always understand. Um, so he will give justice. Uh, in fact, he'll give justice to the elect who are crying to him. Will he delay long over them, verse 7? It's, I mean, it's a rhetorical question. It suggests the answer is no. Uh, in fact, he says, verse 8, I'll tell you, he'll give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? And I think there's the tension right there. On the one hand, justice comes speedily. On the other, the, ch- the challenge for us which means sometimes it's the hard thing to do, is for us to persevere. God calls it speedy, and sometimes we're going to call it slow. And he's going to be operating on a different timetable, different purposes, a different means to the end. And, and honestly, a lot of times he's working on a different definition of what justice is. I don't think we always understand the right answer. He does. Um, and so there is this gap he, he, he loves us. He's working for us. He's working for justice. He's working to make the world right. He's actually working speedily. He's not delaying. And yet, at times we're going to feel like it is. At times it's going to feel slow. And so we have to learn to trust a timetable that we don't always understand. So he's reorienting uh, here in the first parable our understanding of God, which, you turn to the second parable, is going to reorient our understanding of ourselves. As we see God differently, we start to see ourselves differently. So then he tells this parable, again, a well-known parable to many of you. So he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. There's our setup. So then he says this, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who exalts himself, uh, humbles himself will be exalted. So there's this tension here, a picture Notice the, the comparison is, one, it's the, the, the re- righteous religious person, the Pharisee. You know, the Pharisees have been kind of increasingly the villains of the story. There's going to be some redemptive moments for a few of them here in a few chapters. But we're seeing them growing increasingly hostile. So when we set up a story of the Pharisee and the tax collector, we kind of know who the hero is supposed to be and who the villain is supposed to be. Um, we, I think we have to remind ourselves that in their world, they would have seen it the opposite. When they hear a story of the Pharisee and the tax collector, the tax collector is supposed to be the villain. But what's the issue is that disciples cannot be independent of God and dependent on him. The way it sets up the story is the Pharisee is the righteous one who is trusting in himself. He has taken all of this religious life and has seen it as a means to justify himself. He is proud of his religious accomplishments. Um, I tried to emphasize it in the reading, but you look there 
the number of times in verses 11 and 12 where he uses the I. I, thank you, that I am not like other men. I've done a lot of great things for you. You should be proud to have me on your team. I mean, that's really kind of what he's saying. Like, look at look how great I am. And that's his prayer. That's how he's talking to God. Um, there's, there's an overwhelming sense of his own righteousness as he's spending his time comparing himself to say, well, look at how lousy those people are. Man, am I great. And he talks about some of the things that he does. And when he's fasting twice a week, he's giving tithes of all that he gets. He's actually showing that he's kind of going above and beyond the law. He's actually following some of the kind of the recommended practices that the Pharisees would have. That's far more than what the law would have required of him. So he's got a lot of things, a lot of accomplishments there. But he has seen his religious work as a kind of religious accomplishment um, that is orienting himself towards himself. All he is looking at in the mirror, all he's looking at is he's looking at other people and dismissing them, and then he's looking at himself and all that he's done, and he is quite proud. And in all of this, he has washed away any need for the grace of God. Um, And he's looking down on any of those around him who are seeing their own need for that grace. So it's a picture of the one who is the religious one who is actually not a follower of God at all. And in all of that religious accomplishment has no standing before God because they have trusted in themselves. And so I think that alone is a warning. Anytime we're gathering as the people of God, if we want to say the things that we do become these kind of righteous acts that give us standing before God, um, it will not do so. We cannot produce our resume of accomplishments before God and say, now God, I've proven it. You've got to accept me. Uh, we will be standing like that Pharisee who will walk away without being justified before God. We will those who are exalting ourselves and will then be humbled. But in contrast to that, instead of those who are living independent of God, disciples are instead saved as an act of mercy. That's what the tax collector is offering. I think it's it's interesting the tax collector is is the ultimate outsider because they're compromised people allying themselves with rome enriching themselves off the suffering of others but here the tax collector is the one justified because he's asking for mercy and in that request for mercy he's not comparing himself to others in any meaningful way he's not looking around at what other folks are doing he is seeing his sin seeing his brokenness and bringing that to a good God who is the only source of healing and restoration that he can have. What you see in that contrast is a kind of freedom from a life of people-pleasing, a life of a performance-based religion where somehow we have to be afraid of one another because somehow my accomplishments may not measure up. Uh, And instead, we can come as we are in the midst of our brokenness and seek a reorientation of how we see ourselves in light of who God is. It's the tax collector that is celebrated. Third story. This is where we began in our reading. Now, it's reorienting not only our understanding of ourselves, but our understanding of other people. So now you have the children coming to Jesus. And again, this is a common story that we'll tell in Sunday school. But notice what Luke does. None of the other gospel writers will do this. Uh, Now they're bringing in not just children, but even infants to him. 
So the image we have is not just of, and like this picture I have, all the, the pictures that you'll find on this verse are really all about kind of bringing Jesus, bringing the children, gathering the children. It's a beautiful image. But here it's also the babies that are being brought to him. And that, that, I think that challenges or stretches us a little bit on what this is stressing. A lot of times when we talk about this, these passages or the passages that are related to it in the other Gospels, that we stress about, you know, children are innocent or trusting or um, complete dependence. I think a lot of those lessons are written by people who are not parents or a lot of years away from their times where their kids were in the house. But um, I, I, I question a lot of those images. But I think one is here in the infant image. What does the infant offer? I mean, th- there's, there's, there's true dependence there. There's complete, <laughs> there's complete dependence. Uh, in their world, the infants, we, we have a lot of lofty, kind of nice visions of children. They did not. Uh, the, the, the infants and children are the least valued. They are truly the marginalized of the Roman world. The Roman world had incredibly high infanticide, kind of anticipating our, you know, really, frankly, our culture of abortion in our day. But, but the Roman world had a high, it was, you kind of ex- understood that many children, if you didn't want the kid, especially if it was a girl, go leave it out on a rock somewhere and just let the, let the kids starve. Like they just would abandon them. There was a, a lot of uh, incidents of infanticide. It was a real problem at the time. In fact, that was one of the, the pieces that really caused the early church to grow was that um, the church became a, a rescue operation, that a lot of the, it was the church, especially in the Roman world, that would go and, and gather the children that had been abandoned or be a place where you say, you know, if you don't want your kid, we'll take them. And the ones that got abandoned, it was the girls. Um, it was a sex-selective infanticide culture. Uh, and so the, the church became a, a place where that's where all the women were at. And so then when they got around time to looking for a spouse, guess who they were marrying? And guess who was influential in drawing them to faith? So the, ro- the, the Christian world was growing because of the love for truly the most marginalized there. Um, they were disposable. They were overlooked. And so maybe it's understandable that the disciples see them bringing the infants and bringing the children to them, and they're just kind of capturing the values of the culture and saying, look, Jesus is an important figure. He's doing some important teaching. So don't waste his time with these, these people. We don't have time for them right now. Um, and he rebukes them because disciples are called to learn to share God's heart for the marginalized. That's one of the things he's doing here is Jesus showing his love and compassion for seeing those that others are not seeing. Um, children uh, in their world perhaps was ni- were neither to be seen nor heard. Uh, they were simply overlooked. Um, and, and so Jesus saw them and Jesus wanted them among them. So to receive the, the children, to receive the infants was actually, I think, of a piece to him receiving the sinners and the tax collectors and all of these outsiders. This is just another outsider that Jesus is receiving. And that's what he says as he calls them out. He said, you know, let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. So the disciples are childlike as members of God's kingdom. Um, the, the key is, I think, again, I think the key to children here in the image in the first century is that they're marginalized. Um, that all members of God's kingdom belong to God's kingdom, not because of some righteous merit, think about the Pharisee we just read about, but they belong there because of the grace of God. 
that we receive the kingdom of God, that we are part of the kingdom of God as an act of grace, as a work of grace and mercy, not as some kind of entitlement. And so as recipients of that grace, our hearts should be opened up to the others who are marginalized, who stand on the outside, to draw them in, to welcome them in. It is reorienting our understanding of each other, of the people around us. And then finally, the longest of the stories is reorienting our relationship with our possessions, and really with the things of the world. So here you have this ruler that comes before him, and, and you see this respect in verse 13. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And, and that, that's a, I, I think we often overlook that. When he says good teacher, that's a, it's a political term. Uh, it's not just a teacher, it's a good teacher. There's a sense of like reciprocity going on here. Like I'm going to kind of sing your praises so that you'll sing mine. Uh, so I'm going to give you respect because I expect that respect in return. Even the opener, the way he addresses him is kind of a coming in self-righteousness. Um, but he comes to him and, and he says, you know, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? He says, and I, that's, I think that answers that, that the nature of that address gives a little bit of Jesus' rebuke. Why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. Like, don't, don't try to butter me up here. Uh, you know the commandments. Don't commit adultery. Don't murder. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. He said, well, I've done all that. All that's from the, from the very beginning. I've done all that from my youth. So he says, well, then sell all you have. Give it to the poor. You'll have treasure in heaven. It's pretty hard calling. And it says, verse 23, when he heard this, he became sad, for he was extremely rich. And that wealth for him, and this is a pattern that we've seen throughout Luke, for him, that wealth had created a kind of independence. He saw his wealth as this um, means of blessing, God had blessed him, and he blessed him enough that he could then live on his own and live an independent life. And so Jesus' response, we need to hear that challenge here. Disciples need a dependent faith. This independent faith is not going to work. In fact, he says, verse 24, it's how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier uh, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Which is to say that the camel, it's, the, the camel is the largest animal they would have had in that area. The, the eye of the needle is probably the smallest thing that they could have had in their day-to-day -day life. Uh, all of that image is, it's impossible for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And, and he says, well, it's even easier for that, that impossible thing to happen than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples respond appropriately with despair because when he's saying that as he's looking at that then he said well there's they can't there's no hope uh, if if wealth is so captivating if the stuff of this world is so captivating that merely to have it is to place ourselves in a place of independence where we cannot come into the kingdom of god then we are without hope and then they respond appropriately then who can be saved and the right answer to verse 26, according to Jesus' logic, is, well, nobody. And, and I think we've got to pause over that and, and, and embrace that that's what he's teaching. Uh, who can be saved? Nobody can be saved. Under your own power. Under your own merit. But then he tells the rest of the story um, that, that what is impossible with man is possible with God. 
So as the disciples need this dependent faith, the disciples are embracing, need to embrace a salvation that God makes possible. You can't earn status or you can't earn some salvation based on your good works. Uh, but impossible through Jesus becomes possible. Through Jesus' work, through the work of God on our behalf, the impossible becomes possible. Um, and so the disciples then say, well, look, look, we've left everything for you. And then there's this ending with a note of reassurance. Having embraced his salvation, it's this, this willingness to follow. He reassures them, if you follow me, you'll know my blessing. Verse 29, I say to you, there's no one who's left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come. The difference between the disciples and the rich ruler is a reliance on God versus a reliance on self and their, his own possessions. This whole thing is a story of reorientation. As we, let me, let's put all these pieces together, these four stories. It's a long sentence, but let's try it. Here's the key. As we reorient our understanding of God, it reorients our understanding of ourselves, which reorients our understanding of others, and reorients our relationship with our possessions. It's all about reorientation. Reorient your understanding of God through Jesus and through, through understanding Jesus, through seeing the world through his view, you start seeing everything in your life differently. Jesus is the dinosaur in the room. So I want you to take that look at. If you see him, it changes. It should change you. Don't miss him. Who do you understand God to be? A lot of folks that have walked away from the faith, they, they understand God to be a, a tyrant or a disciplinarian or a God who's indifferent. And my invitation is simply to understand God by understanding Jesus, understanding who he is. Look at how he walked on the earth. Look at how he interacted with the poor and the marginalized. Look at who he called the task. It's all a reorientation. And as you look at him, as you see God more by understanding Jesus, ask yourself then, what are you relying on? Do you rely on yourself, your own strength, your own ability? your possessions, the stuff you have, your career, your accomplishments, your education, your family history, your own righteousness. Um, what you rely on will shape what you think about God, and it'll shape your relationship with Him. How do you view other people? Do you have an eye for the marginalized, the outsider, the needy that are around you every day? And can you share God's heart for them, revealed to us in Jesus? Jesus is meant to reorient us. He reorients our understanding about God because when we reorient our understanding of who God is, it will reorient our understanding of everything around us, ourselves, others, and our possessions. So my encouragement to you is to recognize Jesus as that dinosaur in the room. Let him reorient how you see this world, and it will change how you live. Let's pray. God, I pray that you will reorient our understanding of who you are as revealed to us in Jesus Christ and how we can live and act, treat others, see ourselves, see our things. Help us live for you uh, as we understand who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. If we can help you in any way, please come while we stand and sing.